All right, welcome back, everyone. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 26. We will continue our study in the book of Acts. We have chapter 26, which is today, then 27 and 28. So just coming down to the end here of this study in the book of Acts. So if you are turned there, uh, we're going to read through that first portion down to about verse 18 together. We'll also have it up on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you. There are some Bibles on the table behind the pole over here in the middle of the sanctuary. Um, so many ways to join in and read along with us. Acts chapter 26, beginning in verse 1, again reading down to verse 18 together. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know, and they knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our 12 tribes earnestly serving God night and day hope to attain." For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. While thus occupied as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Lord, thank you for the reading of your word this morning. Thank you for speaking to us already through it. Thank you for plowing that fallow ground of our hearts. And may we be open and attentive, willing to listen, willing to receive all that you have for us. And God, I'm always amazed and I'm so thankful that you have words that you speak to us as a group, as a church, but you also have individual words that you speak to our hearts. And may both be in effect today. And may we hear and receive and listen with eagerness and willingness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we've been following this situation of, of the Apostle Paul. We remember that he had this desire coming off the end of his third missionary journey to go to Jerusalem and preach to his brethren, the Jews. He had been out ministering to the Gentiles for many, many years, some 20 years or so, out ministering and going about uh, all over uh, the Middle East and uh, later to Europe. 
preaching the gospel, planting churches, going to synagogues, trying to minister to his brethren first, but then ultimately going to the Gentiles and speaking and ministering to them. And wherever Paul went, usually there was some kind of controversy because he went with the good news of Jesus Christ. He went to tell people that God loved them and that he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die for the sins of mankind. And that this God who loves us so much, who is our creator, wanted to be in personal relationship with each human being who is his creation. But the process of walking into this relationship with God the Father meant humbling yourself before God the Son, whose name was Jesus. And you would have to confess your sins and believe on the name of Jesus Christ and come to him and lay down your life and lay down your rights and lay down your beliefs and believe in the word of God and believe in all that it says. And remember, Paul, as a, as a completed Jew, he understood the Old Testament scriptures. And as we're going through what we call New Testament times, the New Testament hadn't yet been written. It was just starting to come together a little bit. Paul himself had written a few letters. Probably the Gospel of Mark was authored by this time, but the New Testament hadn't come together. So he's speaking of the Old Testament. So as we'll see today, Paul's talking about how in the Old Testament that God himself had been telling his people for years and for years and for years that there is life after death. And all of us, every human being, will experience life after death. But will we experience life after death in the presence of God and of our Savior, Jesus Christ, or will we experience life after death outside of the presence of God in a place where there's called weeping and gnashing of teeth? It's called hell. And so Paul has spent his life going about preaching and teaching. And so when he got to Jerusalem a few chapters back, he, he got there, he preached the gospel. There was an uproar when he began to give his testimony and he mentioned the name or the word Gentiles, the whole uh, Jewish population of the city of uh, Jerusalem just got, went into an uproar. They were going to tear him limb from limb. The, the Roman guards had to literally pull him out of the crowd, put him over their heads and carry him into the barracks to protect him. And so Paul has now been through a number of trials locally. He then got sent down to Caesarea Philippi, which is where he is now. He's been there uh, basically in prison under arrest for the last two years and he's had so many opportunities to witness for the name of Christ. While he's been in prison, uh, not being allowed to travel and to go about, remember as we studied a couple of chapters ago, uh, that Festus had said, hey, just whatever, you know, let people go in and visit him. Don't, don't, you know, don't put him in solitary confinement. Allow people to go and to see him and to minister to him and have visitors. And so Paul had many visitors over the course of those two years. And so he's been through a number of trials and then when um, the previous Roman ruler who had put him in, um, in prison had sort of, his term had come up and a new ruler was sent in, um, as he came, uh, he didn't know what to do with Paul, you know, this uh, Festus, that is Felix was the previous ruler. I get the two guys mixed up all the time. Festus, when he had conferred with the council, uh, said, I, I don't really know what to do. And so then he found out that King Agrippa was coming to town, who was sort of a higher ranking official in the government. And he, as he came in, he, he told Agrippa about Paul. He says, a previous guy left me this mess here. I don't know what to do with him, where there's no charges against him. Uh, it seems to be a religious issue, not really a matter of Roman government or Roman issues or breaking the law, committing treason, anything like that. So would you listen to him, please? Would you help me with this? And King Agrippa had agreed, yes, I will listen to him. So as we come into chapter 26, we are now in this situation where Paul is appearing before King Agrippa. And we learn a few things here. King Agrippa was uh, well-versed in the Jewish ways. He had studied the laws of the temple. He had uh, been schooled in the, in the ways of the Old Testament. So he understood Jewish customs. He understood the Old Testament. He had read the Old Testament. And so King Agrippa now saying to Paul, verse 1, you are permitted to speak for yourself. And understand that in this situation, this was a very, very formal situation. 
Both the king and the governor had on their, their judgment robes, one purple, one red, submitted, denoting their rank, and this was a formal court. And all of the people who were in this court were Roman officials and high-ranking people throughout uh, that region. And so Paul now is, is speaking not just before a little tribunal of four or five people. He's speaking before a very large crowd of people. This is a very formal event. And so the king comes in, he sits down, and he says, you are permitted, Paul, to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews. Notice something about Paul. Paul was not looking at this Uh, From the point of view of, I'm a poor, lowly prisoner, and I hope they don't kill me. He's looking at this as a captive audience. He's looking at this as a fulfillment of prophecy. He's looking at this from the point of view, and he'll explain this as we go through it, but when when God saved him, when God spoke to him in Acts chapter 9 on on the road to Damascus, and then later when he spoke through uh, Ananias, Uh, to uh, then Saul of Tarsus before his name became Paul, he had said to him, you know, you're going to appear before kings and magistrates. You're going to witness of my name before people. And I think Paul in this moment, when he says, I'm very happy to stand here before you, in part, he's, he's, he's there because he's realizing God is with me. God has brought me to this place. God is fulfilling his word. And so I am getting to speak before you and before all of these people today. And it's not so much about me being on trial as it is about you being on trial because what I'm going to present is the gospel. And you're going to have to answer to God. So I'm going to speak and I'm happy to speak. Notice as he says this, I think that the crossover for us is when we are put in a situation where we're before someone and there's an opportunity. And I believe as a believer in Christ, because we have the spirit of God within us, I know this and I believe many of you probably know this, you've experienced it. You're, you're there with someone and the spirit speaks to you and says, this is an opportunity. And so the thing for us to do in that moment is to take advantage of that opportunity and to speak. You say, what do I say? Well, First of all, read your Bible and pray and ask God. You know, sometimes I think we think that we have to be all trained up and know how to do this, that, and the other thing. There's nothing wrong with training. Training is good. But be filled with the Spirit. And let, the, let God work in and through your life. Sometimes you just say, hey, are you religious? Do you go to church? What do you think about God? What, you know, just start a conversation. And just begin to speak with them, you know. And sometimes I also think that we think that it has to be this, this one and done kind of a situation where we just talk to somebody about Jesus one time and then we walk away. You know, it might be over the course of time. It might be with a coworker, right, that you see every day at the, the coffee pot at 10 a.m. or 10 p.m. or whenever you work. And just allow the Lord to use you. Allow the Lord to minister and speak when you think the Spirit is prompting you to speak. And so Paul is taking advantage of the opportunity that is before him, and that's something that we need to do. Take advantage of those opportunities. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all things of which I'm accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. So Paul's like, I'm going to pull out the big guns on this one. Because you know what I'm talking about. I don't have to like dumb it down, so to speak, because you, know, you don't understand what I'm talking about. You know, you were trained, you've read the Bible. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And by saying that, sometimes we have a, a negative connotation of Pharisees. But the Pharisees were actually the, the strict religious people. These, these were the people who believed in the Bible. Now, they misunderstood it, but they believed in the Bible. So when Paul says, I was a Pharisee, he's, he's saying, I was, I was very zealous for the things of God. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. In other words, I've read the word of God. I've believed it. I've believed the Bible. 
to this promise, our 12 tribes earnestly serving God night and day hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. He's going to go on to define what this hope is. Notice in verse 8, why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? We looked at this a little bit in the previous weeks, but there's several places from the Old Testament that speak of God speaking of the afterlife, of God speaking of a resurrection from the dead. It was either last week or the week before I shared a verse for you out of Daniel chapter 12. Here's a couple of verses today out of Job chapter 19. Job 19, beginning in verse 25, says, and this is Job speaking, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, meaning through death, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. For whom, excuse me, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Now, remember what Job had been through. He had lost his family. He had 10 children, had grandchildren. I mean, to lose someone in your family, if you've ever been through that, you know how how painful that can be and how grievous it is. Imagine having your whole family wiped out basically by a cataclysmic event like a, a storm. Remember Job's story, his whole family was wiped out in one day. So Job is sitting here in his misery, but he's clinging to the truth. And what is the truth? My Redeemer lives. When you go and read that in your Bible, Job 19, verse 25, the word Redeemer is capitalized. Referring to the fact that this is an Old Testament reference to Jesus Christ. For I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth. I think Referring, of course, prophetically to the future, but one day Jesus would come, the incarnation, the first coming of Christ. But of course, there will one day be that second coming where Jesus will return in the clouds and he will come at the second coming and and come and stand on the earth. And after my skin's destroyed this, I know that in my flesh I shall see God. How did Job know that? If you know anything about Job, Job lived very early. In fact, Job was most likely the first book of the Old Testament ever written. Job was likely a contemporary of Abraham or perhaps even before Abraham. So he was very early on as far as we know. So there was no Bible per se for him to believe. He just knew he had communion with God. He had fellowship with God. God had spoken this to his heart. Turns out he was right. Because all throughout the scriptures, this is spoken of, the resurrection of the dead. Now, when Paul says this to King Agrippa, why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Well, either the Spirit was giving him insight into what was happening in King Agrippa's heart, or perhaps he already knew. Maybe King Agrippa was of the sect of the Sadducees, which they were uh, the people who didn't believe in these things. They, didn't, they believed in portions of the Bible, but there were certain portions they excluded, and they didn't believe any of the Old Testament scriptures that spoke about the resurrection from the dead. But you know, many people, when you, when you think about what he's saying here, why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? You probably know, you've probably heard from people who believe in reincarnation. I'm going to come back as a plant as a tree, as an animal. I love cats. I love dogs, whatever your favorite pet is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to will myself to come back in the afterlife as my favorite pet. No, you're not. <laughs> That's just, I don't even know where that comes from. It just comes from the pit of hell. There's no truth in that. God's word, the only source of truth, the Bible says that God created us. We are created in his image. And we have been Uh, been born to give glory to God. We bear the image of God in in who we are. And so we, 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 Paul said in his address to the Areopagus in Acts 19, I think it was, he said, in him we live and move and have our being. You see, we belong to God, we're created in his image. And when we die, we will be resurrected either to the resurrection of life or to the resurrection of death. The resurrection to stand before God because we've believed in Jesus. 
and receive rewards and be brought into the presence of God eternally into heaven, into the court, into the throne room of God, or cast away from his presence because he doesn't know us and we never knew him. So Paul's saying here to this king and before this court of incredibly influential and wise people, why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? You see, there is a resurrection. It will happen. But this issue of raising someone from the dead, one commentator said this, listen carefully. Difficulty must always be measured by the capacity of the agent doing the work. Let me say it again. Difficulty must always be measured by the capacity of the agent doing the work. How many of you, raise your hand here, we've already had one round of this this morning, here's round number two. How many of you have the capacity to raise somebody from the dead? You have that power. None of us, right? Only God has that power. Difficulty must always be measured by the capacity of the agent doing the work. Someone has said, if you can believe the first verse in the Bible, then you should have no trouble with the whole rest of what comes after it. What does the first verse say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you believe that, if you understand that, then the rest of the Bible makes sense. Why? Because there's faith involved. Faith in the Word of God, faith in who He is, faith in truth. So King, why should it be incredible? Why should you think it incredible that God raises the dead? In other words, is anything too difficult for the Lord? The answer is no. The obvious answer is no. With men, things are impossible, but with God, all things are possible. If you can believe that God spoke the worlds into existence, if you can believe that God created every living thing as you read the Genesis account in chapters 1 and 2, if you can understand that there is a God, that His name is Jehovah, His name is Yahweh, that He's here right now present among us, and we thank Him for that, speaking to us, ministering to us, He's given his, us His Word. When we read it, I'll speak for myself here, but hopefully you are the same way. When you open the Word of God and read it, these words burn off the page into my heart. And I rejoice to read His Word. Psalm 119, I rejoice at your Word as one who has found great treasure. And our mistake is in not bringing God into things. We exclude Him. We forget him, we leave him out, and we make our plans and make our decisions and do this or that, and we plan our week, plan our schedule, and all of that, and we have no thought of God. And we've said over and over and over, and I'll say it again today ad nauseum, instead you ought to say from the book of James, if, if God wills, we'll do these things. So we make our plans with a caveat, if God wills. Remember, even the Son of God, Jesus himself, on the night before he was crucified, after he had had the last supper with the disciples, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. He gets on his knees and prays, Peter, James, and John, about a stone's throw away, the rest of the guys a little further away sleeping. And he's there praying before his Father, and he says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, this cup of suffering. Nevertheless, not what I will, but your will be done. Even the Son submitting His will to the Father. You see, this is going to be a theme in what Paul is saying as he encountered God. He was learning to submit to God. In the flesh, things are impossible, but before God, all things are possible. Let me make it really practical for you. If any of you have this problem that I have sometimes when the alarm goes off in the morning and you know there's that little thing called snooze right there. Anybody ever hit the snooze one, two, ten times? You see, when you're tired, God can give you energy. Lord, help me. I'm tired today. I didn't sleep well. Whatever. Whatever your thing is. God, would you help me? Would you be with me today? God, would you guide me? Lord, I've got this meeting today I've been dreading. This thing happening. I don't want to go to this meeting. I hate conflict. I don't want to do it. But God, would you, would you help me? Would you give me strength? Would you prepare me? Would you go before and open the door so that I can speak? 
so that I can not just deal with whatever the thing is, but that I can fairly represent you in the way that I conduct myself. You see, God wants to be there with us and for us, and he wants to help us. Remember, in him we live and move and have our being. So is it too difficult to think that God could raise the dead? Continuing on in verse 9, indeed, I myself, Paul speaking, said, I thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Why? Because he was raised a Jew. These people were posing a threat. They were saying the Messiah had come. And Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling body. He said, we have not approved or authorized that this man was the Messiah. So we're standing against him. So Paul's saying what I've learned and what I've been trained in, and let me make a crossover here for us because this affects many of us. This is why many people go to counseling. The way I was raised, that's why I'm the way I am. That's why I think the way I think. And that's why I can't do anything different. I must do what I was raised to do or respond in the way that I was shown when I was a child. You know, this is the way I was raised. I, that I, I thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I thought this I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints, I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and they were to put them to death. And I cast my vote against them. Paul saying, I had authority. I had a vote in the matter. I could say to these people, they're heretics, they're lunatics. We should kill them. They're a threat. Their truth is a threat to our reality, and we need to silence it. I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme, meaning to speak against the Lord, to speak against the very Holy Spirit who had saved them. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Now, Paul is saying here, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He's saying, I was a representative of God, but he was also saying that I was exceedingly enraged, enraged against them. In other words, I was a very angry religious man. Know any angry religious people? That's a contradiction in terms, in my understanding, because if we know God and he knows us, and we've given our lives to him, and we've submitted to him, being an angry religious person should not be a characterization that should ever be able to be stated about you or me. And when you see that in someone, you know that something is off in their relationship with God. Something is broken. And rather than getting angry back at them and engaging in that, we ought to be praying for them, and we ought to be coming alongside them and saying, look, how can I help? Obviously, you're a very angry, broken person, how can I come alongside and be a part of the healing process for you, if that's possible? I persecuted them, even to foreign cities, while thus occupied, meaning with uh, persecution. As I was journeying to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests at midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. They also saw this light. It's interesting. Paul's saying here, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun, brighter than the noonday sun. I have heard it said that in that part of the world and certainly in anywhere where there's more of a desert region, when you're just out in the middle of nowhere and there's sand and there's no trees and all of that, that at noonday when the sun is out, no matter how bright you think you may have seen it, it's even brighter because it's reflecting all off of the sand and the rocks and it's saying here, Paul's saying here, I saw this light from heaven brighter than the sun. Paul literally saw the light before, the, the physical light before he figuratively saw the light, meaning the light of enlightenment of the truth of God's word. Paul went to Damascus supremely confident that he was right. And it took a light brighter than the midday sun to show him that he was wrong. What does it take? What has it taken to convince you, to convince me, to convince anyone that we're wrong before God? And we must stop and take a knee and say, okay, Lord, I'm listening. What do you have to say to me? And that's what Saul, then Saul of Tarsus, had to do in verse 14, when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, 
Why are you persecuting me? You see, he thought he was persecuting whom? The people who believed in Christ. And Jesus is saying, no, Revelation, you were persecuting me. It's hard for you, verse 14, to kick against the goads. We talked about this last time we, Paul had told this story and he gave us this understanding. But we want to come back to it again. And I believe when the scriptures repeat things, it's for our benefit. When he said to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. First of all, what are goads? Goads are sharp, pointy sticks used by farmers, particularly with oxen. And it is commonly known that oxen would uh, push back and kick against the master who was behind them, you know, putting the yoke on them. Part of what they were rebelling against, the oxen that is, was having the yoke put upon them, being yoked to another oxen. So they were rebelling against that, and then they were rebelling against, against the fact that they were, they were being told they had to do work. They were being told they had to go in a different direction. Basically, they were being told anything. And so they would rebel and kick, and so the farmers developed these sharp, pointy sticks. And whenever the oxen would rebel and kick back against that, they would feel that sharp prick or point in their hindquarters as they rebelled. Now, if they kicked back hard enough, I suppose it would break through the skin and cause bleeding and create a sore. In fact, it's said of people who know about these things that, uh, notice it says, kick against the goads, plural. This is not just a sharp pointy stick. Often they would have to build basically a big board sort of in front of where they would sit to to drive the the carriage or the wagon or whatever it was, put a big board basically with spikes on it right behind the oxen. So when they kicked back, they weren't just kicking back against a single goad, but they were kicking back against a wall of goads. And this is what it took to bring the oxen into submission. So you got the point here? Literally? So here's what was happening. Jesus is now saying to Saul, comparing him to an ox, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, if any of us here have ever ministered to someone, shared the gospel with people, prayed with people, and you see them getting angry and all stirred up, and you, "Ah, don't talk to me about Jesus and all of that, I would submit to you that they're getting pricked by those goads that they're kicking against. So don't take it as personally against you. Take it as, you know, this is a good thing. God, they're kicking against the goads and God is working in their lives. But notice, who's it hard for? It's hard for that person who's kicking against those goads. Now let's speak for a moment just with respect to those who don't know Christ, who are being called to salvation. When they are in that rebellious process, God is going to continue to poke and to prod in their life until they, they surrender, until they stop kicking against the goads. But I believe the same is also true for us once we become believers in Christ. We can become a little bit rebellious, can't we? Well, Lord, I don't want to do that. Lord, I don't want to go that direction. I don't want to submit my life in, in that way. And the same thing applies We're kicking against the goads. Who's it hard for? It's hard for you. It's hard for me. When even as a child or a son or a daughter of God, when we rebel against him and we kick against those goads. And let me just say to you this morning, if you don't know Christ and you're experiencing that goading, literally you're kicking against those points, there's there's a discomfort in your life, then I would encourage you, stop rebelling, stop kicking, stop resisting. And sit still and listen and give your life to Christ. And for those of us who are believers who perhaps were struggling and were having a hard time, maybe we're resisting, maybe we're kicking against those goads. And I would say the same thing in like manner, except as, as a person who belongs to him, maybe we need to fall to the ground. Maybe we need to get on our knees before the Lord and say, Lord, I'm tired of wrestling against you. In fact, in the New Testament, doesn't it say that we can both uh, quench the Spirit of God and resist the Spirit, resist the Spirit's work in our lives? Certainly, we as Christians don't want to be in that place. 
where we are kicking against the goads and resisting the work that God wants to do in our lives. Paul tells this story. They fell to the ground. It's interesting in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, listen to this. The words of the wise are like goads. And the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. Again, reading that verse, the word shepherd is capitalized, speaking of Jesus, our shepherd. The words of the wise are like goads. And the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. I don't know if you've noticed this. I've noticed in my life. Times when I wasn't sure, you know, if God was speaking to me about something, but I thought he was, but I wasn't quite sure. And then I flip on the radio, maybe it's Renew FM, and all of a sudden I turn it on in the middle of a message, and what's the guy saying? The thing I didn't want to hear. Or I've been scrolling through my social media, and some friend posted a verse of the day going, man, this verse just spoke to me today. And what is that verse? It's the thing I didn't want to hear. (laughs) Happens to me all the time. And then I'm going, okay, Lord, I'm starting to get the point. I'm starting to get the message. You're speaking to me here. And then I open my Bible for whatever my reading is, and I'm like, oh, there it is again, right there in front of me. God wants to speak to us. But more importantly, he wants us to obey. Paul said, verse 15, so I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. Listen, to make you a minister and to witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. Now we know that Jesus met Paul and gave him a specific mission, a specific purpose. But I also submit to you that in like manner, if you are a child of God this morning, that this applies to you. Maybe you don't have the same mission from Jesus that, Paul, that, that Jesus gave to Paul, but certainly the spirit of this mission is the same. This purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and heard and the things I will yet reveal to you. See, God didn't just save us to give us fire insurance. He saved us because he loves us, but he also saved us because he wants us to be lights. Paul says this in his writing to the epistle to the Philippians, lights in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation. We are meant to shine as light. Jesus said we are to shine as lights in the Sermon on the Mount. So our lives as we've been saved, we've been lit up by the gospel. And so the commission of the Christian is to serve the Lord and to serve the message that he has given us to carry. And then he says in verse 17, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. In other words, as I send you to these people and you have opportunity to speak to whether it's Jews or Gentiles, I'm going to have to deliver you from them because they're going to be angry. They're they're not going to like the message. But listen, verse 18 is one of those verses that's as clear a presentation of the gospel as you will ever find in the Bible, just like John 3, 16. Acts 26, 18. Here's Here's the mission. Ready? To open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by me in faith. Let's go through that briefly. Let's break it down. To open their eyes. That means our, our, our spiritual vision is literally dark. It's, it's black. It's, you know, we can't see. It's like you're driving down the road and your headlights have gone out in the middle of the night. You can't see. You don't know where you're going. And that's what someone is like who does not know Christ. They are walking in darkness. They're driving in darkness. And he says, this is to turn them from darkness to the light. Doesn't it seem a little absurd that someone who's stuck in darkness, you might have to say, there's light right over there. Come with me and I'll show you where the light is. And they're like, nah, I like the darkness. I want to stay over here. You see, that's backwards. But the world is telling us, right? that the right way is the darkness and the wrong way is the light. And Jesus says the right way is the light, the wrong way is the darkness. So 
Paul, I've given you this example here, this mission, but this is our mission, to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God. Do you realize this? Maybe this is an eye-opening realization for you this morning, that anyone who does not know Jesus Christ is under the power of Satan. They are. That doesn't mean they're a member of the Hell's Angels motorcycle gang. It just means they are under the influence of Satan. You see, God makes it very binary. You're either for him or against him. You're either in the light or you're in the darkness. Your name's either written in the book of life or it isn't. To turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. When Jesus died on the cross, when his blood was shed, wasn't that so that his blood might become the atonement, the covering, the sacrifice for our sins? In the Gospels, when Jesus died, we have that beautiful picture, I think it's in Luke's Gospel, where it says that the the minute Jesus breathed his last, the veil in the temple, that 18-inch thick tapestry that stood between the most holy place, the holy of holies, and the, the court inside the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, symbolizing the fact that Jesus had gone before. And the book of Hebrews clarifies all this for us. It says that Jesus went into the most holy place and his blood was applied on my behalf. Why? So that I might be forgiven. So that you might be forgiven. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by me in the faith. In other words, you become a part of the church. Capital C. You become a a part of a membership of a group of people who are God's people. They're God's sons, God's daughters. You see, we become a part of a family. And that's what church is supposed to be. Church is the gathering of God's people together to worship him. The called out church, ecclesia, the gathering of the called out ones. But in essence, we become family here on the earth until we meet the Lord. And so when we deprive one another of of our presence. And by the way, this morning, if you're home uh, because you're sick or something, you know, I'm glad you can join us. But if you're home out of some kind of fear, I say this not to condemn you, but but to invite you into the fellowship of the saints, to come and become a part of this inheritance among those who are sanctified by me in faith. This was what drove Paul This is what gave him this passion to stand before the kings and to be willing to lay down his life and to be willing to be beaten. Why? Because he understood that people are in darkness. He understood that people are underneath the power of Satan. Now, how many TV movies have you watched where somebody says, we have to rescue these people from terrorists? Or the terrorists have set some bomb in place and we got to get everybody out before that bomb explodes. And from an entertainment point of view, it's like, wow, that's awesome, right? But from a reality point of view, Everybody who does not know Christ is under the power of Satan. We ought to go in as God's commandos to to rescue them, to pull them out of that. Jesus said, Luke 14, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year, year of the Lord. The heart of Jesus wanting to liberate people and to preach the gospel to them. Jesus in Mark chapter 9, when Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when he had come into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, and you get the idea that Jesus turned to them, looked them in the face, and said, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. And then he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened. Jesus did this a number of times, right? Remember when the people, uh, the four men brought the the man who was crippled laying on his bed, a little pallet. And they couldn't get to where Jesus was. And they, they just knew we've got to get Jesus, this man before Jesus, the only hope for this person is to get him before Jesus. And so they, what did they do? They went up on the roof. Think about what they had to do. 
This isn't like, you know, modern day, like, you know, EMT, they come in, you're all strapped to a, a board, right? And they're going to get you down the stairs so you don't slide off. This guy is not strapped to, you know, an, an EMT pallet. He's, he's on a little makeshift sling and they're trying to get him up on the roof without dropping him. They get him up on the roof, they tear the roof apart, they come up with ropes, they drop him down, get him right in front of Jesus, and Jesus healed him. That's how desperate, that's how intense they were about seeing this man get before Jesus. And we could go on and on. I have here a bunch of scriptures that talk about this. We're ambassadors for Christ. Paul's saying, I'm an ambassador in chains. Nothing's going to stop Paul from getting the gospel out and from speaking and ministering to people. Verse 19, Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works befitting of repentance. That's the other part of this gospel. Repentance means to change your mind, to turn and walk in a different direction. It means to admit you're wrong, something that we all have trouble with, and turn and follow Jesus and do the right thing. How do you know if you have pride? How easy is it for you to admit that you're wrong? So Paul, saying these things, This is what I did. This is how I lived. This is what I was living for. And for these reasons, he says in verse 21, the Jews seized me in the temple and they tried to kill me. They couldn't deal with what I was saying. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand witnessing both to small and great, basically anybody who'll listen, I don't care about your stature, what rank you have, saying no other things than those things which the prophets and Moses said would come. Now listen to this here. I think we see this idea of this principle in what we've just read. Paul was more interested in telling people about Jesus than in his personal freedom. Think about that. Paul was more interested in telling people about Jesus than he was in his personal freedom. That's heavy. He goes on and says that the Christ would suffer, verse 23, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. And that's where they had the problem, right? They believed that the Messiah would come and bring light to them first. But when he said, and to the Gentiles, that's where they had a problem. But the Old Testament is just filled with references of God saying, we must also take this out. Yes, you're my chosen people, but we must also preach and save the Gentiles, And for whatever reason, they kind of skipped over that. They didn't see it. They thought, well, we're God's special people. And if any Gentiles want to come, they have to convert to Judaism. Then they can come. When they become as us, then they can come. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. That's not what the gospel says. The gospel comes to you where you are, as you are, and calls you out of the cesspool of sin, out of the darkness, into the marvelous, marvelous light. And, it, and the gospel calls you to him from where you are. You don't have to go through some elaborate ritual process in order to come. You just have to come. Romans chapter 10, how shall they hear unless someone preaches? And how shall someone preach unless they are sent? And when they are preached... When the word is preached, they just believe in that word. And if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Paul said the gospel's simple. The gospel's for anybody. The gospel's for everybody. That the Christ would suffer. He would be the first to rise from the dead, would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Now, as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, he's been sitting over here listening. Paul's been preaching mainly to anybody who would listen, but of course, he's kind of zoned in on the king. And Festus can't contain himself any longer. And he said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. And isn't this what people say? about Christians today? Your much learning has made you mad. You believe the, God, the, the Bible? The Bible's made you mad, made you crazy. You're out of your mind. You've gone too far. You're a fanatic. You're a lunatic. You're a Jesus freak. He 
Here's some reasons someone like Festus might think Paul was mad. Though he was a prisoner in chains, he was happy. How can you be in prison? How can you be in chains and be happy? Because the Lord was with him. He knew the Lord had a purpose for him. He insisted that God could raise the dead. That had to make Festus kind of go, ah, I've never seen anybody raised from the dead. So I don't believe it. You're crazy. Paul, as he's speaking, says he experienced a heavenly vision that, that, that this bright light met him on the day. He's saying, this, this is what happened. Jesus spoke to me personally. And Festus is going, Jesus, first of all, who's Jesus? A, B, as far as I know, he's dead. So you say he's alive, but I've never seen him. Show, show us Jesus and we'll believe it. But, but I don't believe what you're saying, Paul. And because Paul was willing to give up his freedom, as we just said, so that he might preach. I mean, that's crazy, right? Why would you give up your freedom? Paul believed in a message of hope and redemption for all of humanity, not only for Jews and for Gentiles. Festus probably had never seen anyone like this. And he turns and says to him, verse 25, I'm not mad, Festus. I haven't lost my mind, but I speak the words of truth and reason. And without saying it by implication, he's saying, you're the one who's mad. (laughs) For the king before whom I speak freely, notice he turns it back to the king. The king knows these things. He knows the Old Testament. He's been to the temple. For the king before whom I speak freely, he knows these things, for I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, look at verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Look at what Paul's doing. Paul's calling him to personal accountability. Paul's saying to him, do you believe? He's calling him to decision. Now, some of us have trouble with that. We may look at our personality. Well, I'm not really a type A personality. I'm type B or C or some other type where I just can't envision myself Asking someone, do you believe in Christ? Do you want to believe? Do you want to accept Christ? But you see, it's not by might, it's not by power, it's by my spirit, thus says the Lord. It doesn't have to be, see, it doesn't have to be the way you were raised. It doesn't have to be according to your personality type. You just have to be filled with the spirit and let God work in you and work through you. King Agrippa, do you believe? I know that you believe. In other words, you're right on the edge. King Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. I'm, I'm, I'm right there. But I can't quite, I, I can't step over that line. Why might he, as this king, sitting there in this court with all of these people, not be willing to cross that line? Well, there was a person sitting beside him, his wife, Bernice, actually, We didn't even go through this, but there was this long history here of uh, moral infidelity and uh, just crazy things going on between uh, the king and, and Bernice, and she was a very influential person. He probably didn't want to lose her, Right? So he's probably sitting there thinking, if I say yes to, to what you're saying, which I, in my heart I agree with, I'm going to lose her. She's going to get mad at me. She's probably going to go tell Caesar because she had a direct line, as we know her history, back to Caesar, back to Rome. So this could ruin my standing. On the other side from Agrippa sat Festus, a man's man, a no-nonsense man, a man who thought Paul was crazy, and perhaps Agrippa thought, I can't become a Christian. Festus will also think I'm crazy, and he might tell Rome about me that I believed in Jesus. So ultimately, because he wanted the praise of man and he desired that more than righteousness with God, he was willing to say, well, you almost persuade me, but no, I'm not ready to give up all this. I'm not ready to lose my wife. I'm not ready to lose my status and my position. I kind of like the king thing. I say something and people serve me. That's really cool. I don't want to give that up. Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am. 
except for these chains. And you can just picture in your mind what Paul says at that moment when King Festus, when the King Agrippa turns him down and said, well, you almost persuaded me. He's saying, I wish that everyone, and you could see him just turning and looking at people and holding up his chains saying, I would wish that you could all be just like me right now, except for these chains. Happy, free, forgiven, having light. I'm a child of God. Can't you see what God's done for me? That's what I'm bearing witness of. Listen to what Spurgeon said. Oh, that men were wise enough to see that suffering for Christ is honor, that loss for truth is gain, and that the truest dignity rests in wearing the chain upon the arm rather than having a chain upon your soul. Do you get the sense that things have shifted from Paul being on trial to everyone else in the room being on trial? Paul's the prosecuting attorney, not the witness. They just didn't realize that it flipped. Understand that almost doesn't count. You've heard the old saying, almost only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. Almost doesn't count when it comes to believing in Christ. You either believe and you're converted and your life has changed, your heart has changed, your mind has changed, the direction of your life has changed, or it hasn't. Something that scares me to no end is the people I know, and there's many of them, who say they're Christians, who profess the name of Christ, but there's not a shred of evidence that they know Christ. I heard this many years ago in college. If you were put on trial today for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? So for us today who know Christ, and we've just heard Paul give his testimony. Do you know him? Has your salvation made a difference in your life? Would you say, if I had to give up everything in my life, the one thing I wouldn't give up is my relationship with Christ? If my house burned down and all of my possessions, honestly, I wouldn't care. It might be a little sad for some keepsakes or whatever, some memories, pictures of the kids when they were little and all of that. But it doesn't matter. Why? Because my name's written in the book of life. That's the most important thing. That's the only thing that matters. If you boil it all down to, I'm on my deathbed and people are coming in to say goodbye to me. Hey, it's been great knowing you, you know. They only care about one thing. That my name's written in the book of life, and by the way, is yours. Because the understanding I'm getting as I go through the book of Acts here again is this. People who were believers were changed. They were changed people. Are we changed people? When he had said these things, the king stood up as well as the governor, Bernice, and all who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, this man's doing nothing deserving of death or change. Then Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. But God had his plan. God was going to take Paul to Rome. And that's what we'll encounter next week. So Lord, as we come to the close of this today, I pray for all of us listening here, uh, for any listening, Lord, who might not know you, who might not be able to say that they are uh, a son or a daughter of God, they might not be able to say that they've been born again. We pray right now for them and ask that they would willingly bend their knee and say, Jesus, I want this, I want that relationship, I want light rather than darkness, I want forgiveness. I want this change in my life. I want to know you. I want to know that my name's written in the book of life and that I will stand before you in heaven one day on the right side of all of this. And Lord, for those of us here who are professors and believers, then we pray that you would light a fire within us, Lord, that you would burn away the dross that's in our lives. And that we might care about one thing and one thing only. As Paul said to the Corinthians, I purpose to know nothing among you except Jesus and him crucified. May that become for us the focus, the passion 
of our lives. Regardless of what we do for work, our profession, any of that. That we would be that light in the dark place. Lord, light us up, we pray. Fill us up. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.